This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Samantha Donovan, coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne. Tonight, the use of character references in the courts under scrutiny after an out-of-date letter was tendered for a high-profile child sex offender. Also, the Reserve Bank boss indicates a pause on interest rate rises is closer, but can borrowers take any comfort from his words? They certainly haven't, you know, nailed it down and said, look, we're only going to do one more. They have kept the door open to give themselves that breathing space to respond to the data that's going to you know, be coming out over the next couple of weeks and even months. And we head to the dance floor, where people with epilepsy are praising a music festival for its move away from strobe lighting. Well, look, at one point in time, smoking around at festivals and inside venues was also allowable. But, you know, as we learned of the effects of smoking, we then went, oh, actually, that's not acceptable. And so I think strobe lights is just the same. First tonight, the use of an out-of-date character reference in a high-profile Victorian case is prompting calls for stricter rules on the use of the documents in court. Character references are tended to help a judge in formulating a sentence. But it's emerged a child sex offender recently relied on a testimonial without the knowledge of the person who wrote it. Bridget Fitzgerald has more from Melbourne and a warning this story does mention child sexual abuse. A character reference is used in court to vouch for someone who's committed a crime. Look, technically it's not a legal document, but it can be relied upon in legal proceedings. Ruth Parker is a criminal lawyer and the principal at Galbally Parker Lawyers. There are no strict parameters about what goes into a character reference. However, there is best practice. So, for example, in my office, um, all character references have to include the name and contact number of the person who gives that character reference. It has to be addressed to the presiding judge or magistrate. They have to acknowledge that they know that the person's pleading guilty to the particular charge and they understand the circumstances surrounding that offending and that they are prepared to give a character reference in support of the person. Character references, who can write them and how they're used, have been thrust into the spotlight this week after it was revealed an out-of-date statement was used to vouch for Jeffrey Joffa Korf, the high-profile Collingwood Cheer Squad member who pleaded guilty to sexually abusing a teenage boy in 2005. Last month, Korf was sentenced to 12 months prison, wholly suspended for two years. But Jeremy Maxwell, a former fund raising manager for the Epilepsy Foundation says he was completely unaware a character reference he wrote for the Corf family in May 2021 was used in court and that he would never have provided a reference had he known about the charges. I'd, I'd just done a number of general character references for Joffa over the years and his daughter just said, can I have another one? And I did. Um, I'm pretty sure I probably used exactly what I've used in the past. In a statement, Corf's victim, Alex Case, told the ABC... Every time I gave evidence throughout this process, it was under oath. I find it both concerning and offensive he could provide these character references without legal checks, given the weight that was given to them by the judge. Victoria's Premier Daniel Andrews says the state may need to consider tougher rules for character references. As a point of policy, not this specific thing, but as a point of policy, uh, perhaps, perhaps we do. Perhaps we do need to make sure that 
when people are vouching for others or people are handing up, uh, handing up material, that it is as uh, contemporary as possible. Kerry Thompson, the CEO of New South Wales Victim Support Group, the Victims of Crime Assistance League, says she's very concerned about reports of misuse. We would expect that any character reference provided to the court for matters of this serious nature are recent, are up to date, and the author of that character reference has full knowledge of what their statement is going to be used for and to, to learn that that's not the case, that's quite disturbing. Kerry Thompson says the lack of rules around character references is troubling. We had a case recently in New South Wales where there was 13 character references for quite a serious act of violence. Um, that's quite dis- that's quite alarming for us. Uh, we haven't come across that before. There's an opportunity in New South Wales to do victim impact statements, but even then there's some very strict parameters around what can and can- cannot be said. So... For a victim to suffer from a serious act of violence and then have to listen to the uh, offender have uh, be of good character, as as the legal profession says, it's um, it's it's very very hard for them to sit and listen to that, and it causes a lot of um, extra stress and anxiety. Criminal lawyer Ruth Parker says character references are an important part of the legal process. For instance, when it comes to first-time offenders where a crime is committed that's totally out of character. But she says it is an area that's open to abuse. People can produce large numbers of character references um, and unless every single one is checked, you cannot be 100% sure um, that the person who purports to give the character reference actually did. Um, I think as I just a fundamental basic principle, uh, a reference should at the very least confirm that the person understands that this is being produced in serious criminal proceedings and they understand that the person is pleading guilty to whatever the offence is so that they are completely aware of what they are giving this evidence about. Ruth Parker from Galbally Parker Lawyers, Bridget Fitzgerald reporting. Well, after raising interest rates for the 10th time in a row, the Reserve Bank Governor, Philip Lowe, has given borrowers a glimmer of hope today that the increases may soon come to an end. In a speech at a business summit in Sydney, he's indicated for the first time that the bank is closer to pausing rate rises. But some economists are warning it'd be unwise for anyone to predict what the RBA may do next. Angus Randall has more. In his first speech since raising interest rates to the highest levels in 11 years, Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe had plenty of positive points on the economy to point to. On the positive side, households' wage and salary income increased by more than 10% last year. People have been finding jobs and they've been finding the hours they want to work. And there's a large stock of additional savings that were accumulated over the pandemic period. So they're positives. On the other side, though, interest payments are increasing quickly at a time when inflation is high. He says Australia is in a good position to walk the narrow path between bringing down inflation and pushing too far into a recession, especially compared to some other countries dealing with the same problem. When the board makes its decisions each month, it's managing two risks. One is the risk of not doing enough, which would result in high inflation persisting, The other risk is that we move too fast or too far and the economy slows by more than is necessary to bring inflation back down in a timely way. The RBA governor warns further rate hikes are still likely to be required to bring inflation under control, but the end could be in sight. At our board meeting yesterday, we discussed the lags in monetary policy, 
the effects of the large cumulative increase in interest rates to date and the difficulties that higher interest rates are causing for many households. We also discussed that with monetary policy now in restrictive territory, we are closer to the point where it will be appropriate to pause interest rate increases to allow more time to assess the state of the economy. At what point it will be appropriate to pause will be determined by the data and by our assessment of the outlook. Warren Hogan is an economic advisor to Judo Bank. He says it's vital the public understand the RBA's reasons for hiking rates and for pausing them. Not only uh, is it important that they uh, have confidence in the RBA to be doing what is in our long-term best interests, they also have to believe in what they say they're going to do, the so-called credibility issue, which has been put under pressure in the last couple of years. And it was good today to see the governor clearly spell out their strategy, that is to get inflation down without causing a recession, to suggest that we're almost at the point where we can sit back and watch. Is this more positive tone, cold comfort for those about to pay more on their mortgage next month? I think it is. And I think the real trouble is not so much what we're having to do now with interest rates. I mean, no one, especially no one with a mortgage, likes this. But the real pressure that has been brought to bear is on those people that not only took out mortgages a few years ago, but took them out on the view that they're going to have a bit of a head start on their mortgage, that rates would stay low for a number of years. I think that's where the RBA's real mistake was. Governor Philip Lowe says he's basing his comments on the latest data. One of these data points is around wages growth. Cassandra Windsor is a senior economist at the Committee for Economic Development of Australia. We're not seeing any outbreak in wages. So despite that tight labour market, Wages growth picked up a little bit, but nothing that would be causing them any concern. And what they have had a lot of concern about is about outbreak in wages, which can lead to this, what they call the wage price spiral, which is where the wages really start to feed into the inflationary environment and, and keep pushing that inflation higher. So we're not seeing any evidence of that, which is fantastic. And that I think will give the RBA a little bit more confidence that they can potentially slow things down without um, impacting on, on wages Much of the reporting in the past 24 hours has suggested there may only be one more cash rate rise before the Reserve Bank stands back and waits to see what happens. Katrina L is a senior economist at Moody's Analytics. She warns anyone against predicting the actions of the RBA. I mean, the speech today was was pretty clear and that the door is open and they are being driven by the data. So I think they certainly haven't, you know, nailed it down and said, look, we're only going to do one more. They have kept the door open to give themselves that breathing space to respond to the data that's going to you know, be coming out over the next couple of weeks and even months. The Reserve Bank will meet again in April to consider a rate rise. Angus Randall reporting. To the robo-debt Royal Commission now, it's heard evidence today that the watchdog investigating the scheme didn't receive documents declaring it unlawful and therefore missed an opportunity to stop it. The Commonwealth Ombudsman investigated robo-debt at the height of the scandal in 2017. A senior figure at the watchdog told today's hearing that while they had concerns about robo-debt, the department responsible didn't disclose it was illegal. Gavin Coote reports. Dealing with complaints from the public is core business for the Commonwealth Ombudsman. But in October 2016, a big rise in complaints about people who had Centrelink debts raised a red flag for the watchdog. 
Louise McLeod was the senior assistant ombudsman at the time. It jumped quite dramatically. Uh, we always got a reasonable volume of complaints, um, you know, making up two thirds of the complaints the office received. But yes, we noticed a, an increase. I think it almost doubled from October through to December. The robo-debt recovery scheme ran from 2015 to 2019 and it was this flurry of complaints that led the Ombudsman to begin investigating it. And you're also talking about a cohort of people. They're accessing the welfare system. They don't have the means, you know, to take it to the AAT, to take it to the federal court. So, you know, we were concerned about that. Louise McLeod today told the Royal Commission into the scheme There'd been concerns about the Department of Human Services' approach to internally reviewing complaints about debts. We were concerned about the responsiveness of the department in engaging with the issue. We'd had several meetings with them in the lead up to the 5th of January um, and the department seemed very comfortable with what it was doing, even though we were raising concerns and we weren't sure what they were doing was in accordance with the legislation. The Ombudsman's 2017 report ultimately found flaws with the way RoboDebt was being run, but stopped short of saying it was unlawful. But today, Ms McLeod was shown draft documents advising the income averaging method used to calculate debt was potentially illegal years before the 2017 Ombudsman investigation. This is the first time I've seen this document. Could you think of any action within the Ombudsman's powers that you might have recommended had you been aware of these documents? We would have definitely been asking questions of the departments, um, you know, basically a please explain what this is about and calling out that this was enough to say it was unlawful. When you say calling out... Um, Publicly. Right. In a report. In a report. Council assisting the Commission, Angus Scott KC, asked Ms McLeod whether she felt misled for not having been provided several crucial documents by the department. Look, to be honest, it, it annoys the, <laughs> the hell out of me. Um, yeah, and it's, it's really disappointing. It, uh, that demonstrates to me they, you know, they weren't participating in good faith. The inquiry was also shown a February 2017 email from a colleague at the Ombudsman, which read, quote, I could drive a truck through the holes in this advice. It prompted this response from the Commissioner, Catherine Holmes. Uh, a very sound sentiment, can I say? Uh, is that a sentiment that you held at the time? Yes. You could drive a convoy through that rationalisation, couldn't you? Earlier, the Royal Commission heard from Deloitte partner Aaliyah Worth, who the Commission had tasked with doing a technical study of robo-debt and found it did not use artificial intelligence. Rather, it was a relatively basic system of automation that was unable to learn from mistakes or improve over time. The RoboDebt uh, scheme did not have uh, algorithms within it that allowed for any self-learning um, over time. They were very, very defined and specific to achieve a very specific goal. Mm -hmm. So it's a pretty rigid, limited scheme. But... Uh, it's, it's, very, it's extremely rigid. The inquiry will tomorrow hear evidence from the current head of the Ombudsman and a senior figure at the Australian Tax Office. Gavin Coote reporting. This is PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. Ahead, why are governments still allowing building in flood zones and in some cases even funding it?
to the conflict between Russia and Ukraine now, and after months of speculation about who was responsible for blowing up the Nord Stream gas pipelines last September, new intelligence suggests pro-Ukrainian groups were behind the attacks. German prosecutors are also backing that theory. But as Nell Whitehead reports, the Ukrainian government is denying any involvement in the pipeline's sabotage. When the Nord Stream pipelines burst in September, sending gas bubbling through the Baltic Sea, investigators were quick to conclude that the blasts were deliberate. But since they went down to the seabed and found traces of explosives, questions have swirled about who would have the means or motive to blow up the pipelines. Denmark, Poland and Sweden say they believe leaks in two major Russian gas pipelines to Europe are the result of sabotage. From the Russia defence ministry uh, who are saying that according to available information to them, representatives of the British Navy took part. In Investigative the- journalist Seymour Hirsch alleges the US is behind the attacks. Writing in a- but uh, I think suspect number one has to be uh, Russia. New intelligence pins blame on pro-Ukrainian saboteurs. The New York Times says that a review of new intelligence in the US suggests that a pro-Ukrainian group carried out the attack, acting against Russia's president, Vladimir Putin. It cites unnamed officials who say the perpetrators were most likely Ukrainian or Russian nationals. Those officials say there's no evidence that Ukraine's president, Vladimir Zelensky, or his government were involved. They declined to disclose the nature of the intelligence or how it was obtained. Also on Tuesday, German media reported that prosecutors had made breakthroughs in German investigations, finding traces of evidence suggesting Ukrainians may have been involved. The German investigation has identified a boat that may have been used for transporting a crew of six people, as well as diving equipment and explosives, into the Baltic Sea, according to the reports. They suggest the boat was rented from a company based in Poland that is owned by two Ukrainians. But the investigation has found no clear evidence about who ordered the attack or where the crew hailed from. And they stress there's no proof that Ukrainian authorities were involved. And Ukraine's government does deny involvement. Presidential advisor Mikhailo Podolyak tweeted that Ukraine has nothing to do with the Baltic Sea mishap and has no information about pro-sabotage groups. To be honest, I don't think we'll ever know who blew up Nord Stream. Matthew Sussex is a fellow at the ANU Strategic and Defence Studies Centre. It looks as though the United States has, has blamed, you know, either Ukrainians or a combination of Ukrainians and Russians who who are, you know, adversaries of Putin. The Germans, I think, found, uh, found a boat with, with traces of explosives on it. But I think that it's going to be a long time before we ever find out really, you know, who they were working for. Uh, and who was ultimately responsible. Intelligence agencies have struggled to obtain hard evidence about what happened last year in the Baltic Sea, but fingers have pointed recently at the US as well. In February, investigative journalist Seymour Hirsch published a report claiming America took out the Nord Stream pipeline. It cited a source with direct knowledge of the process, claiming that US Navy divers, helped by Norway, planted the explosives. The White House denies that as complete fiction. The United States is, is one of the, the parties that would have had a vested interest in, uh, in Nord Stream being blown up. Um, I don't think we put too much store by 
uh, the Seymour Hirsch uh, article about this. It was uh, quoting, I think, one anonymous source at, at great length, which was you know, not exactly the best kind of journalism. But um, there are a variety of different players that could have had an interest in uh, in blowing up Nord Stream, including the Russians, the Ukrainians, the Poles, the Americans. So, yeah, I'm afraid it's still anyone's guess. There are investigations underway in Denmark and Sweden, as well as Germany. State Department spokesperson Ned Price says the US has faith in those inquiries. Uh, we have full faith and confidence in the investigation that they're running. Uh, of course, we're going to wait for those investigations to conclude. Uh, we'll see what they say. But uh, again, we have full faith and confidence uh, in our European partners who are behind this. Russia has blamed the West for the explosions and called on the UN Security Council to independently investigate them. Neil Whitehead reporting. Back in Australia now, and the Northern Territory government is defending its decision to use taxpayers' money to build homes for Aboriginal residents in a flood zone that's flooded again. The controversy is prompting some observers to question whether governments and communities are taking climate change forecasts seriously. Jane Barden reports. Residents of three remote communities in the Victoria River area of the NT left their homes last week when the water rose. They were brought to Darwin and now face the prospect of returning to wrecked homes. Ursula Chubb was airlifted off her roof from Dagaragu. Everyone's worried about a house, about everything that we've lost. I'm not sure when we're going home, but we're going to start up back from scratch. We're all back to nothing. The region's Victoria Daily Mayor, Brian Pedwell, is angry residents didn't get more warning. He's also asking why the NT government built new Indigenous public houses in the Pigeonhole community in a flood zone because they're now submerged. Pigeonhole that's been underwater once before, back in 2000 also. In the last five years, houses been built in that flood prone area. Due to the remoteness of these communities, it costs taxpayers between 500000 and a million dollars to build each house. The NT Chief Minister Natasha Files has sheeted the decision back to the community. What happened in 2018 is that there was some existing houses that were demolished and the community's preference was that they were rebuilt there. Brian Pedwell isn't accepting that. They say that they've been consultating with the community. Well, I beg to differ. But the easy option for the government and housing was put that house here for you. But what else does the community have than options? The mayor says the whole 150-member pigeonhole community want to be relocated out of the flood zone. Well, that's a big um, request. That would be a, a huge cost to relocate multiple houses. But when we have these events, we have to look at the resilience into the future. And, and after Cyclone Tracy, there was talks of Darwin being built you know, in different locations. The Insurance Council of Australia has been lobbying governments for years to stop encouraging more flood zone building. Chief Executive Andrew Hall. Governments are still allowing a development on floodplains. I think the challenge in Australia is that for too long we've looked at cheap land as the ideal location for putting cheap, affordable homes. But the main problem there is that cheap land is often flood land. What are some of the areas around Australia where this is particularly happening? We're seeing this across all states and territories. Uh, we're seeing examples every day, including on the mid-north coast of New South Wales, where uh, so-called affordable homes for retirees are being built in one in 20 flood zones. 
These sorts of developments need to be stopped. Does the Australian community need to think of this as a whole of community problem, both in taxation and in insurance premiums across the country? Everybody bears the brunt of the cost of, of floods. Not only does it impact insurance pools, and, and insurance pools are designed to pool risks from across the country. So when they're heavily depleted by one of Australia's largest natural disaster events last year, uh, there is an impact across all policyholders. But more broadly, a lot of people who don't have insurance because they can't afford it, the backstop becomes the government. So governments, for example, are investing now $1.5 billion into the Northern Rivers and Southeast Queensland on top of all the other losses they incurred as government as well. International Panel on Climate Change author and Australian National University Professor Mark Harden is calling on governments at all levels to pay more attention to predictions that more areas will face floods, erosion and storms. When we look out to, say, 2050, we might see sea level rises of something like 30 to 40 centimetres, and it could be in the sort of 60 centimetre range. In addition, what we're seeing already is increased wave activity on average across the globe. We're also seeing an increase in the proportion of very bad cyclones, the Category 3, 4 and 5 cyclones. We need to have a very open and honest discussion about you know, the advantages and disadvantages of different options, You know, staying in place and protecting or sometimes relocating. Professor Mark Howden from the Australian National University. He was talking to Jane Barden. A Victorian music festival is moving to make its venue safer for all by reducing the use of strobe lighting. People with epilepsy are applauding the decision and are encouraging other venues and festivals to follow suit. This report from Oliver Gordon. Melbourne musician Carlson lives with epilepsy and regularly uses the time in between songs to advocate for the end of strobe lighting. Normalise booing when they put strobes. We'll soon get rid of it and we can all hang out together and have a good time and be safe together. He spoke to PM about why he uses his time on stage to bring the issue to light. Well, you can have a seizure. And that's not going to be too good. It's a horrible thing to happen, especially in a crowded place. This week, the organisers behind the popular Meredith Music Festival announced they'd be taking steps to make lighting arrangements less dangerous for people who have epilepsy. It's not a blanket ban on strobes, but it's won the praise of musician Carlson. To come out a couple of weeks before and say a blanket ban on strobes would be very hard. Um, I think it's a huge step and testament to Meredith that have listened to what people want and need and move so fast on it. He says there are plenty of other ways to create a mood without them. You can get very creative with lighting these days without strobes. And I really don't think it takes that much away from the music. So what are strobes? And is their popularity waning as people call out their potential harms? Tom Fitzmaurice runs a party lighting business in Melbourne. They're bright and they make people look like robots and they flash fast. Have you seen a reduction in demand for them in recent years? The demand, um, in the past, everyone always talked about strobes, but now there's heaps of other lights that can do strobe effects, but also have colour and, yeah, probably better effects. And people don't ask for strobes as much. He's not had customers come back to him telling him his lights have caused incidents, but accepts they can. No one's come to me and said, oh, that caused caused a fit, but I know that it does it. So 
maybe it's a good thing that they're trying to get phased out. I'm not sure. The move to make lighting arrangements safer is being welcomed by Music Victoria, the peak body for the state's music industry. Chief Executive Simone Schinkel. At one point in time, smoking around at festivals and inside venues was also allowable. But, you know, as we learned of the effects of smoking, not just on the individuals partaking in that activity, but on the community surrounding them, we then went, oh, actually, that's not acceptable. And so I think strobe lights is just the same. There was a time and a place for them to be enjoyed. But as we've realized that they are having impacts on some members of our community, um, we've gone and started evolving and saying, no, that's not fair. We need to look after every everyone as much as we can. She acknowledges the move towards phasing out strobes across the industry won't necessarily be an easy one though and points out some international acts will come with lighting shows that are not easy to negotiate around. So what you can get away with uh, in other parts of the world, you know, Australia might be more progressive in supporting its community in different ways, like strobe lighting and avoiding that where possible. Um, But yeah, it is those hard negotiations that take place but we do think it's still a worthwhile conversation to have so that we can start making that change and make everyone safe. Whilst People with Disabilities Australia CEO Nicole Lee is happy some venues are starting to respond to the needs of broader audiences, she hopes one day there'll be no choice but to. You know, it's around making sure that these things are embedded in legislation, making sure that these things do become hard and fast rules versus just, you know, not being just a nice to have or a good thing to do, actually being stated this is something that venues have to be doing. Her message to any business thinking of making things more accessible is clear. If you're catering for, you know, as many access requirements as possible, you're going to get more people being able to access that venue. So if you're catering for the most complex access needs, that then filters down so that you've got even more people can engage with your service, engage with your you know festival um, or your business venture. So it's it's a win-win for um, service providers and businesses and venues and, and, and festivals as well as disabled people and people with chronic health conditions. Nicole Lee, the CEO of People with Disabilities Australia, that report from Oliver Gordon. Thanks for joining me for PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Good night. I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. An investigation has found that holes in the Perth Mint's compliance regime could have left it open to money laundering. Today, Four Corners reporter Angus Grigg on why that could end up costing taxpayers millions of dollars. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listener. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.